Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, neighbor. Welcome to the Presidential Caucus of Elkhorn, Iowa, voted one of the top 10 most charming Iowa towns. You betcha. Uh, this is my first time voting here. Okie dokie. You can leave your casserole over on the table there. I didn't know I was supposed to bring a casserole. I do have a photo ID, though. <laughs> no need for that, neighbor. I do have to ask you, who hit the buzzer beater in the Iowa State-Miami game in 86? Oh, Jeff Hornacek. Just making sure you're not a terrorist. Okay, well, where do I vote? <laughs> What's so funny? This is a caucus, friend. We vote Iowa caucus style. What does that mean? Stretch your arms all the way out, close your eyes, and bring your index fingers in to touch your nose. Okay, well, uh, here goes. You just voted for Kasich. Hey, Arnie, put another chalk mark for Kasich, okie doke. Wait, no, I, I didn't want to vote for Kasich. So now you want to do a take back? No problem, neighbor. Arnie, do you know who's got the mandolin? Oh, there it is. Now you have to play Wonderwall by Oasis. Okay. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. That was swell. You're back to square one. Okay, now how do I vote for Bernie Sanders? Stand over against that wall with those folks. And whenever the moderator says, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Bernie come over, you run to the other side of the gym. I'm not gonna do that. Are you? Well, the other option is to go over to the craft table and make a lanyard out of red and black gimp. You people are nuts. This is supposed to be one of the linchpins of our democracy. I should be able to vote easily and then be on my way. I shouldn't have to play mandolin and do summer camp activities. Arnie, I think somebody over here needs a hug. I don't need a hug. I need this to make sense. Never mind. Listen to a show about what's going to happen tonight in Iowa and more arguments about Native American mascots and the future of the bookstore at UConn. And now, one time he voted for Richard Gephardt just to get the free corn dog. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, Iowa does have different rules. So, yeah, so later in the show, we'll uh, talk about uh, Native American mascots, a subject we've covered in the past, but there's a rather odd uh, sequence of events, of events going on in West Hartford where they've sort of tried to get rid of the West Hartford, uh, ma- the West Hartford Native American high school mascots and this kind of, I mean, there's like a guerrilla faction that's kind of sneaking them back into the discourse. And then towards the end, we will talk about uh, what UConn is doing, similar to a lot of large universities, which is uh, raising questions about its sort of basic local, locally controlled co-op style bookstore and whether or not it would make sense to let a big box come in and and, and bid on it instead. So uh, that's all to come right now. Yeah, we are going to talk about Iowa. Uh, the, all, all of the eyes of the nation seem to be turned towards it right now, although the Iowa caucuses resemble actual election activity, kind of the way a paintball game in the woods resembles actual warfare. I mean, th- it's it's sort of like it, but it's also sort of not. The rules are different. Uh, the time you show up is different. The time, amount of time it takes uh, is different. Maybe not quite as different as was suggested in that intro, but different enough. So um, you may be overwhelmed with the incredible mudslide of Iowa coverage, and uh, we're going to try to look at it in some uh, kind of interesting and different ways. Uh, joining us, we have two great guests. David Swerdlick is assistant editor for Post Everything and Outlook sections of the Washington Post, and Gail Sheehy, uh, author of 
Hillary's choice, and most recently her memoir, Daring, My Passages. Everybody knows who Gail Sheehy is anyway. But um, so, uh, David, we're going to start with you. And, you know, this is the Iowa caucuses in a way that it's like some weird family holiday tradition that nobody really knows who instituted it or how to get rid of it. Um, But what we really have is this very unrepresentative place in terms of its demographic, racial and ethnic composition, uh, voting in a very peculiar way that really shouldn't matter uh, on a non-binding basis in terms of delicate allocation. And yet somehow or other, I mean, you know, I'm sure your newspaper, like every other major press organization in America, has all kinds of boots on the ground there as if it did matter. Yeah, no, and clearly it does matter, but for many of the reasons you stated, Colin, uh, it's a little bit problematic. Thanks for having me, and I actually really like the way you described it as the next 24 hours or 36 hours as being a mudslide of Iowa coverage. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to be. Um, you know, I actually wrote a piece about this uh, for WNYC back in 2012, where I had argued essentially that, you know, it was time to take the First in the Nation caucus away from Iowa, and by extension, take the First in the Nation uh, primary away from New Hampshire. Uh, you're right that those two states are not particularly diverse. They're overwhelmingly white. They don't have the diversity of economic uh, concerns and industries that a lot of larger states have. But my argument was more around just the basic principle of why should these two states always get to go first? How about sharing it and let you know different regions go first in different years? That just seems to be the sort of kindergarten logic way way to do it: share and share alike. Um, you have these states who they've gotten this far right on this on this idea that their voters are steeped in this tradition. They take this very seriously. They are uh, sort of steeped and trained in this idea of meeting candidates face-to-face and putting their feet to the fire. And I'm sure that some of that is true. But in in this age of digital campaigns and social media, the idea that the other 48 states can't sort of handle uh, grilling the candidates a little bit, I think, is, uh, is a little outdated. And and what it becomes, I think, also is kind of a Rorschach blot rather than something that you could really kind of analyze uh, the data in a more methodical way. So we're going to watch this. We're going to see what happens. I mean, let's just talk, you know, as though the two presumptive favorites did win. Uh, It's going to be hard to know what a Hillary Clinton win will mean nationally or what a Donald Trump uh, win would mean nationally. It would probably be easier to talk about it if one of them didn't live up to expectations. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's, that's actually very right, right? If somehow, let's say on the Republican side, uh, Senator Cruz manages to pull out a narrow victory, I don't think he'd win a, a huge victory, but let's say he manages to pull out a narrow victory in Iowa tonight. And right now he, according to the Des Moines Register poll, he's trailing, uh, he's trailing Trump uh, 28 to 23 right now. Um, if he were to win, that would completely flipped this narrative that Trump has steamrollered over his Republican competition, and that wouldn't certainly toss Trump uh, out of the race or, or, or set Trump back to the point where he couldn't be considered the front runner. but it would make Cruz then sort of this viable opponent above all other contenders. Um, on the Democratic side, it's a little different, right, because as, as your listeners know, there's really only two viable candidates. Martin O'Malley, I think, is fair to say, is an afterthought at this point. So you've got Clinton, who is sort of the, uh, you know, the, the head choice 
for uh, for Democrats, and 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 Sanders maybe is a little more the heart choice for Democrats. And we're going to see where that shakes out. I think that uh, because Sanders is from Vermont and he's likely to win New Hampshire, at least according to the polls, uh, this sets it up as a as a must win for Clinton in some ways. But on the other hand, for Sanders, there's a lot of pressure too because other than New Hampshire, a lot of pollsters say, look, where is he going to win after that? Is he really going to win uh, South Carolina? Is he really going to win in some of the larger um, March primary states? Um, you know, it's hard to predict. One thing I don't want to do is make a prediction because anyone at this point who says, Colin, that they know exactly what's going to happen, I don't think anyone knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. I think only Ann Selzer is allowed to make the position, uh, predictions at this point. But uh, Gil Sheehy, uh, let's bring you into the conversation. So one of the things that has happened is that Bernie Sanders has consistently outperformed expectations. Um, and one of the things that you've looked at is whether or not Hillary Clinton is holding on to the maybe the core demographic you would expect that would be a lock, a layup, women of her generation. I mean, if, you would think that if, if Hillary Clinton could count on any group of people, it would be that group of people. But it, in terms of just anecdotal conversations you're having and what you're seeing, uh, there are some real questions about whether or not people have Clinton fatigue. Where, where would that be coming from? Well, you're right, Colin. And uh, I, you know, the title that the New York Times put on my op-ed was "The Women Who Should Love Hillary Clinton," mm-hmm. um, and they did in 2008. Not enough to get past Barack Obama and the excitement of uh, electing the first African American. But what I hear now and was hearing for the last few months is there's nothing more sexist than wanting Hillary Clinton as president because she's a woman. Uh, which was really kind of <laughs> a, a shock to me because feminist boomers who have lived the same history that Hillary has and seen how far we've come and how b- much backsliding has happened uh, during this last standoff between conservatives and Tea Parties and uh, Barack Obama. So these feminist boomers, 52 to 70 plus, I began calling them, and uh, 50 of them, and I kept hearing this ambivalence saying, gee, I, you know, I, I really would like to see a woman president, but, you know, I, I really don't trust her. She doesn't seem authentic. And what they mean by that is she changes her positions according to the way the polls are going. She was late to come to gay marriage. Uh, she often gets to the right place, but took her years to get to the right place to say she made a mistake on voting for the Iraq War. So a lot of these women worry that Hillary isn't true to herself. And she, they don't feel this compassionate, nurturing uh, quality that um, they would for most women. And the more I heard that, then I would hear from uh, you know, someone like a, a top editor at a, a very popular magazine say, almost whisper, you know, I should be jumping up and down for Hillary's candidacy, but I'm not. It's an epidemic. And if, if Sanders wins on, at Iowa, I'm right there. Yeah, no, I saw that quote. I thought that would be especially uh, chilling for a, a Hillary Clinton organizer. Okay. Let me uh, turn back to David Swerdlick for a second. One thing sure. that I was thinking about today was that um, even just listening to one of the latest Bernie Sanders rallies out in Iowa was that to an extraordinary degree, he has a very understandable, portable message. In other words, if you've been sort of, you know, medium following the, this process, this primary process, and you uh, and I ask you what uh, Bernie Sanders believes, you're probably going to be able to come up with 
with, you know, Medicare for all or some version of that and maybe free public colleges and maybe making the wealthy pay a larger share for the public good. You know, and that's a very portable, understandable. What does this guy believe in? Well, people tend to know the answer about that. I think more than they know about Hillary Clinton and more than they know about the typical candidate that he benefits to a certain degree anyway by, by having laid out really concrete policy objectives. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think he's laid out concrete policy objectives. The question, uh, again, to my mind, is whether Democratic voters, when they actually get to the voting booth, or in the case of Iowa, to the, to the caucuses, whether or not they're going to think, look, this is the guy who, A, could actually win in a general election, and B, whether or not he'll be able to deliver on those promises, particularly when the assumption is that Republicans in 2017 will still control at least one, if not both, houses of Congress. Um, What he has done, what he and politicians like Senator Elizabeth Warren have done, and maybe to a much lesser extent President Obama and Secretary Clinton, have sort of push through this this taboo among Democrats of speaking about income inequality, about speaking about health care reform, about speaking about the idea that maybe, like some European countries, we should invest more in, in paying for college tuition for those who can't afford it. But, uh, you know, we're still at this point where making those things a policy reality is a little different than just talking about them on the trail. Um, with Sanders, right, he has really hit those points home because what he wants people to know, whether it's his core supporters or people that he's trying to persuade, is that he sees a fairly different vision of how this country should be governed at the federal level. And he, by positioning himself with those issues, is saying, look, Hillary Clinton, although he has said many times how much he respects her and likes her and has worked with her, is someone who is sort of more of the same. She is, in fact, the establishment Democratic candidate. And I think the challenge for both of them uh, is that you had in President Obama someone who both had a little bit of excitement for the base of the party and for the more progressive wing of the party. As Gail said, people were excited to vote for the first black president. And they were also excited, I think it's important to note, and Gail did know, that people were excited to vote for someone who had not supported the Iraq war, like John Kerry, like Hillary Clinton, like John Edwards, like John McCain. Um, and that At the same time, Barack Obama was someone who was a very conventional politician. Even if people didn't see it in 2008, I think most people now see him as, look, he's not a a Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, he's a very conventional president in a lot of ways. Um, So so going back to your your point, uh, Colin, I think think it's easier for Sanders to narrow down to these couple of issues because both he believes in them as policy, but it also helps him differentiate himself from Clinton. Not so sure, though, that people are completely convinced that he'll actually sort of manifest these things if he gets into office. So Can get, I say that? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's, the, it's really about young people who, of course, were the people who propelled Obama into the White House. Fifty percent of millennials at their age 18 to 32 now, uh, uh, or 35, excuse me, um, classify themselves as independents. And we see that in these in these rallies where his lines are repeated back to him, that lines that he's been saying for decades. And you'd think that young people would be a little bored by having a guy who's spouting the same thing he's been doing and he has white hair. No, they think that means authentic. He really believes what he's saying. And they get excited about it. And that's totally the opposite of Trump, who, for instance, is saying things that you know, Republican candidates have never said. And 
sometimes they were said by Democrats. And yet there is the Trumpification of Republican politics. They, the Republican Party created Donald Trump, and some believe it's because uh, conservatives, going back to Barry Goldwater, have made promises, big promises, about the way they were going to turn the whole thing around and really make it uh, make everything better for the people who earn the most money, and therefore they are expected to pump the most money and back into the business world. Well, they haven't been able to live up to their promises, and their base has gotten more and more frustrated, and the children of their base have gotten frustrated, and now they're part of what's the hollowing out of the middle class. And so you have, you know, it's not a surprise, really, if you think about it, that a man who just jumps over all of that, he doesn't give you any concrete proposals. He doesn't tell you how he's going to make better. He just says America's going to be great again. And uh, and people are you know, falling for that line. Again, then you have Hillary and her crowds are dwarfed by the size of the Sanders crowds and also by the attention. If you watch the people sitting behind her, they're often kind of a little dozing off or their thumbs are flipping through their iPhone. You know, millennials who won't sit for six seconds for a real conversation, they'll sit for an hour without touching their iPhones to listen to a white-haired 74-year-old socialist. It, it is very difficult to predict uh, behavior, but I do think, um, uh, David, that, that one of the things we're seeing here also, one of the ways, I mean, the, much has been made uh, of the ways in which, to a certain degree, the Sanders impulse and the Trump impulse come from some of the same places and, and contain some of the same elements. And one of them I'm seeing right now is the don't tell me what to do element. So we saw this over the weekend. Uh, the New York Times endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton, and there were immediately 5,000 comments up on up on the editorial uh, of endorsement, and I, you know, I didn't count them all, but but it would seem like about four thousand of them were from Bernie Sanders supporters saying, "Don't tell us what to do." <laughs> and 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 similarly, I mean, I I would imagine after the Iowa caucuses on the Republican side, there's going to be some regrouping, uh, and Republican establishment people are going to be looking for somebody who isn't named Trump and isn't named Cruz. Who's the third best? Who's the most viable person that we can put our energies behind? But but David, it feels like once again, there's that "Don't tell us what to do." In coming from the Trump people. Yeah, no, I think you're right that there is there is a similarity, uh, and I like the way you put that, the don't tell us what to do aspect. That's right. Voters, I think, now are seeing the media and the party establishments as an unnecessary interlocutor in a lot of ways between them and the candidates that they want to support. To Gail's point about the Sanders rallies, right, people are not just saying, oh, yeah, I like Bernie Sanders. They're turning out at these rallies. They know they know his lines, and, and, and people are passionate. I think when you talk about younger voters, especially – you know, per Gail's point, it's that I think people still want to believe this is, you know, I don't have, you know, the polling data to back this up, but I think people still want to believe that there are politicians out there who are going to lead on principle, lead from the heart, as opposed to leading on what they can maybe get passed through Congress. And, and there was a lot of excitement around President Obama. And I think Democrats now, many of Democrats, especially more progressive Democrats, feel like they didn't get what they wanted out of President Obama. I would argue, and this would be a, probably a conversation for another time, that they that progressives actually got quite a bit out of Obama, but but leaving that to the aside, I think that's what's resonating with Sanders. With Trump, 
it's similar, but I feel like there's a little bit of a difference. His supporters are people who are not doctrinaire conservatives, but people who like his sort of authoritarian uh, affect, if you will. Um, if you look You're talking at about his, Trump now, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I'm talking about Donald Trump, right? He comes across as this very strong leader, mostly because he describes himself as strong, even though if you go point by point on issues, other than maybe uh, the issue of illegal immigration, his, his policy views are not particularly in line with other, uh, other Republican candidates or with Republicans sort of writ large. He's, he, in fact, as, as conservatives have said the loudest, he's not a conservative. Um, so so people, are, people are latching on to this idea that he's, he's leading from the heart, not, not from a particular set of policy. Positions. Oh, David, can I just say, you put your finger on the right word, authoritarian. The Wall Street Journal did an analysis of the uh, the qualities of Trump supporters. They could not find a through line on, you know, age or gender or race or um, almost anything except for one thing that really jumped out. These people like authoritarians. Donald Trump is an authoritarian. He says, it's going to be my way. I'm going to do it. If I don't want you know people coming into this country, I can ban all Muslims. Of course, he can't possibly because anybody who's a refugee doesn't come in through the government. They come in through settlement agencies that have a very careful, well-documented process. So he can't live up to half of his promises, which has always been the problem for conservatives. And one of the reasons their uh, electorate is so angry. But you know, we really have to think about: Do we want an authoritarian government? And yet. Trump is light years ahead of all candidates in utilizing the media to his advantage. He's tied up MSNBC since the beginning of the summer. Yeah, no, I think, uh, Colin, if I could just jump sure. in real quick and just say, no, I think Gail is right about his, his media savvy. He's been, he has the advantage, right, in this election where he's been in the public eye for 30 or 40 years, has been on TV for 30 or 40 years, so he's a master at giving interviews and taking on questioners. And at the same time, because he's never even run for, let alone held public office, he has no record against which his opponents can really attack and say, oh, well, why did you vote for Medicare Part D, let's say, in, you know, in the in the 90s, if, if if in fact you are such a conservative, and that is the challenge for his, his his opponents. The other thing, and I think this goes along with what Gail was saying, is that he has managed to outdo everybody at what they do best. So at one point. Chris Christie was supposed to be the bombastic guy in this race, but Trump is more bombastic. At one point, uh, Ted Cruz was supposed to be the guy hated by the establishment, but the establishment hate, hates Trump just as much. At one point, you know, you were going to have a guy who was going to appeal to the, like, lunch bucket or Sam's Club Republicans, but n maybe a Kasich. But no one appeals to the Sam's Club Republicans better than Trump, even though, you know, he's a billionaire who, who flies around in, in, on a plane with gold belt buckles or seatbelt buckles. So it's, it's this very interesting you know thing and and i mean look people on the left certainly and then many many on the right in fact the the the, the smart set on the right george will jonah goldberg etc they can't stand trump but one thing that's clear is that trump 
has has really taken the reins of this election in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. I, as we're wrapping up here, first I want to say you guys are a good combination. Maybe we'll get you back in March together. Let's do I think it. You guys go well together. Gil Shee, I wanted to ask. You know, I saw a tweet just now from uh, Nancy who tweets about Sanders. His promise is to be our voice. We have to deliver. So this is one thing that goes on. I think more during this phase of the ele- election, the primary phase, where you get people who are active and want to be active, and so they want to be told, yes, you, you people out there, you're going to make this big, huge difference. I'm just, I'm going to lead you, but you're going to be the difference. And whereas Hillary Clinton is running a little bit more on her credentials, a little bit more on her qualifications, basically saying, yeah, let me be president and run things. I've been training for this all my life, you know, um, and and I could be a really good president for you. And that may work a little bit better during the general election where people really, it is a job interview. It's two things. It's a, it's a debate about leadership and policy, but it's also a job interview. At the job interview, which may be closer to the spirit of the general election, she may do better. I totally agree with you that she, um, uh, Colin, that she has the experience um, that, uh, wipes everybody else out of the same out of the category. She is the experienced candidate, but she is also tying herself now, really wrapping herself in uh, Obama. And there are a lot of people who feel disappointed about Obama, Democrats, uh, and particularly African Americans, who really thought that he was going to change the, uh, the 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 tone and 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 action on race and on mass incarceration and so on. And as, we, as we've seen, it's just gotten worse and more coverage and more uh, killings, more black men who feel that they don't even own their own bodies. They can be you know, beaten or shot or tasered at any time. So I think that you know, that's a, it's a problematical thing. Of course, Obama is going to be out there campaigning for her like crazy if she gets the nomination, uh, and that's a big deal. Uh, for she's very very popular among the Democratic uh, base. Eighty eight percent approve of the way he's running the country, uh, and and Hillary Clinton is still twenty years in a row the most admired woman by Americans. Mm. So she has a great deal going for her. But in this global populist tone that we are hearing, uh, you know, the, the it's just a wild card. How many people are going to say, don't tell us what to do, don't give us the same old, same old, but, you know, you're going to improve a little bit on what went before. Give us something totally fresh, totally new. We want change. Change is what Americans have always gone for when we're up against the wall. Right. She might actually be a really good nominee if she could just get through the nomination process. Uh, David Swerdlick and Gail Sheehy. David Swerdlick from The Washington Post, where he's assistant editor for Post Everything and the Outlook sections. And uh, Gail Sheehy, author of Hillary's Choice and most recently her memoir, Daring My Passages. We'll talk to you again in March or something. You guys are a great combination. We'll be back after this. All right. So the battles uh, over the use of First Nations people or Native American people uh, as mascots or symbols for athletic teams uh, is a long one. It's a 50 year old one at the very least. Um, But it seems to be coming to a head in in some places these days. And one of the places it came to a head in recent years is in West Hartford, where, uh, in fact, not only the two public high school teams, but also Northwest Catholic uh, have various versions of that kind of mascot or had various versions of that kind of mascot. Uh, There were some changes uh, that were made recently 
although not everybody, as it turns out, went along with them. That's the story that we're going to tell you uh, in this segment and to help us tell us to help us tell you that story. Kristen Stoller is joining us, West Hartford reporter for the Hartford Current, and then Vincent Schilling, a journalist and editor for uh, Indian Country Today Media uh, and co-owner of Schilling Media, uh, and he has uh, helped this become something of a national story as well. So we're going to start with you, uh, Kristen Stoller. So um, I think it was maybe sometime last year that the public high schools, they kind of worked out a p- compromise, right, that they would keep names, team names like chieftains and warriors, but they would get rid of all the iconography that went with, with, with it, all the symbols, the logos, the mascots, the tomahawks, and things like that. Right, right. Um, so basically they, they got rid of all the Native American imagery in school-sanctioned events. So schools, nothing um, to do with the schools will have the imagery, but, you know, there are still some students led pep clubs that use the imagery themselves. Right. Over at Hall High School, there's uh, something called the reservation, uh, also yes. not a particularly mm-hmm. appetizing thing to call some uh, call a pep club. They tweet as the res. But then the other thing that, that turned up that wind, that caused you to wind up, wind up on the physical front page of the Hartford Current with this story is the notion that there were people creating apparel, people creating Connard apparel that used the old Native American logo, the, 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 uh, a man in a headdress. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Um, and they were being sold. I'm not sure if they were physically given to the students yet, but I know a couple of students said that they had seen people selling um, them and taking money for them in school during school hours. Right, and they've been worn to games. I've, I talked to uh, a senior at Conard uh, over the weekend who confirmed that oh, okay. they've, they've been worn to games and stuff like that. So, Vincent, right. v- Vincent Gilling, you you entered this conversation also. There was one part of this that, that we, we hadn't known, uh, and we have to be kind of careful about how we describe this, but it turns out that at least in some of this unauthorized uh, uh, Conard High School apparel, the logo, the Native American logo, has been altered that, so that there's a kind of unpleasant single-digit gesture kind of hidden in the headdress. Mm-hmm. And sure, we could say alleged all day long, um, but I actually have physical proof uh, sent to me from some anonymous sources, and I'm working on these stories now, actually. So, uh, e- yes, it, it has been worn, and um, uh, I can just say, because I'm still in the alleged phase, but pretty recently, as a matter of fact. Yeah, no, I actually I can confirm it a little bit okay, more good. too. Um, I mean, I really I did talk to well, a, you know I just I want to I'm a journalist too, so yeah. and I saw your story and I thought, I thought it was great. By the way, thank oh. you. Oh uh, well, thanks for doing this. So this is I'm Vincent Chilling. This is now kind of a story then that this went from being a local dust up to something that is now reaching a national audience, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and we're finding a lot as a as a journalist myself. I am uh, Aguasasne Mohawk, as a matter of fact. My tribe's in New York. And, um, you know, I was the journalist who um, discovered the story last year about Adam Sandler when Native actors walked off the set, and that went global. Mm -hmm. And I think um, a voice for Indian country has been consistently uh, and exponentially growing over the past decade and more. I've just seen it grow and grow and grow, and I think the voice, which has once been silenced, is now becoming uh, noticed. 
Now, Kristen Stoller, this is a hard thing to sort of come to some kind of a, a head count on. But the sense that I'm getting talking to people is that, you know, I mean, probably the well, first of all, with any group of high school students, you can assume that a lot of them really don't care that much one way or the other. But then, uh, you know, that people kind of were going along pretty well with this change and maybe even the notion. I, I heard from one high school student this week and the notion that, well, if you want to keep calling yourself the chieftains or the warriors or it was the chieftains in this case, you, you need to. You know, you need to let go of all this other stuff and maybe even act like you deserve to have that name. And that it's a relatively small group of people who are really still fond of the old uh, set of symbols, still still, uh, wedded to those old ideas that are causing uh, the current argument. Right, Colin. I I definitely see that it's it's a very small group of students who are kind of resistant to the change. Um, and, you know, most of the students at Hall have, and at um, Connard, have them along with them. And even at Connard, they changed the name of their school-sanctioned um, pep team to the Red Sea. So they know they just distance themselves and no longer want to associate um, as, as the old chieftains. So it, it seems to be a very small group of kids. Um, it's hard to tell, though. And so, Vincent Schilling, I know... That's I, not what I've heard at all. Okay, what have I, you heard? I, yeah, I've ahead. heard that for the kids that are... Uh, standing up, and, and again, I'm not in your folks' community specifically, so I'm going off of hearsay, admittedly. So that said, you know, I don't want to disqualify anything that either of you were saying, but I will say simply what I've heard, and that's all I can say is what I've heard, is the students and the uh, parents that have corresponded with me, and they reached out to me on their own, came to me and said, it has been H-E double stick, double hockey sticks in this community so many people are attacking us, coming at us, and it has been the vast majority of everyone who is like, you guys are just a bunch of bleeding heart, blah, blah, blah. And they said it has been a nightmare for them, and they are very fearful to tell me their, um, uh, their, the, to allow me to say their information publicly for uh, great fear of backlash. And this is, this is what I've heard from them again. So, Kristen, yeah, what, 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 I, I, go I ahead. would agree that, you know, there is a lot of backlash, even though it is a small amount of students. People were saying that it's gotten heated on social media and Twitter and Facebook. So people have yeah. been taking it very seriously. And, Kristen, yeah. what is what is school leadership saying about this, whether at the level of the principal, the board of ed, the superintendent of schools? What do the West Hartford Public Schools say about this, Kristen? Well, oh, go ahead. Uh, Kristen, you said, okay, go, go ahead, Kristen. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically what the, the – uh, assistant superintendent for administration told me was that, you know, it's a small group of students who are not associated with the school trying to provoke some kind of anger or outrage. Um, but the board of ed chair told me last week that, you know, this isn't something that they want to reopen. This is just a small um, minority of students, but, and they are, have no plans right now to change the names Houston and Warrior. So, Vincent, the problem with this is, I guess, you know, you can have a policy, you can make a policy change at the official level, but if at the unofficial level this kind of merchandise is being circulated and there's this kind of guerrilla faction, really, that's ke- keeping sure. the old thing alive, the question is, does the policy really, is it as meaningful as it could be? Uh, you know, it, that's, a, that's a good question, you know, and, the, and the, I think the simple answer is no. You know, you can't, you can't monitor social media. It would be like the school putting out a policy on Twitter, you know, who's going to listen? You don't have to. You can go from an anonymous perspective. Uh, and, and you know, it's not just students. It's, it's, a, it's parents. Mm-hmm. It's, it's alumni. 
that say, you know, when we were young, we had Indians as our logo, and I'm not going to let it go. And it was a parent that created this T-shirt uh, with the middle finger on it, not not the kids. So honestly, no, you can't really police, uh, you know, or you can't enforce policy on what people say in their own homes, uh, in social environments, or on, you know, social media. You know, it's, it's, it's just not going to work. It's a whole new world that we're in now. So, Vincent, reading uh, Kristen's article, which I thought was really good, and then I sort of looked down at yeah, the... Yeah, I read it too, Kristen. Good job. Yeah. I, I, I Thank looked, you. Thank you both. <laughs> I, I looked down at the comments section, and the comments section usually is kind of a sewer, and it, it was this time, and it was... But <laughs> one of the frequent... Um, one of the frequent things that was said, well, this is a superficial issue. There are more important mm-hmm. things in the world to think about. What's your response to that? Of course. You know, we get this all the time, and I make a joke about it. You know, it's like, I'm not allowed, you know, it'd be like uh, if I had five kids and little Betty broke her leg and like, well, Betty broke her leg. That's the most important issue. Sorry, kids, you're not going to eat for the next week. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, am I only allowed to talk about one issue at a time? I'm not allowed to care about anything else except for what someone else dictates is the most important to me. You know what I'm saying? We as human beings are allowed to have more than one social construct or one social issue that we can care about. Yes, this is maybe less important than if someone is sitting in front of me and is starving to this or hasn't eaten in a week. Of course, I'm going to take care of that person or make sure that they're okay. But this is an issue that is important just as well as other things are important, just as well as, you know, I'm allowed to love if I have, you know, five friends. I can love all my friends. I don't have to just choose one. You know, and that's what people are telling me to do. They're enforcing a social belief on me that I, as a Native person, am only allowed to care about what issues they think are the most important for me. Yeah, and to me, I, this is something that we talked about at the church that I attend on Sunday, and it turned out there were three of us there who had uh, some pretty passionate concerns about this, including, in fact, a senior at Conard High School who I didn't even know was sitting out there oh, when, when I brought it up. But, I mean, you know, one of the takeaways that, that, that I have is, in some ways, it's the most profound and important issue of all. It's where everything starts. Can you look at other people and see them as human beings, as full-blown, three-dimensional, warm-blooded human beings, or can you kind of cartoonize them in your head or reduce them to... To, to some kind of symbolic structure. And if you can do it with Native Americans, you can just as easily do that with Mexicans or Muslims or uh, refugees or, or anybody else, that either we're going to treat each other as equals and as human beings who deserve equal amounts of respect and caring, or we're not. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, and for, for me personally, I, I like to approach things, and, and that's quick to come up in a lot of people's discussions, that they'll, they'll compare this to other races and, and so forth, and, and, I, and I understand that. Uh, what I try to do for myself is not bring up other issues related to other races, only because I have not essentially experienced being another race. So if I was to come out and start judging other races, isn't that what I'm telling people not to do to Native people? So I try to kind of avoid that. And, and the reason why, for me personally, that it is so important, this native mascot issue is so important, as a journalist for well over 12 years now, even, and even before, I've probably interviewed thousands and thousands of people in Indian country who are all different, you know, uh, social constructs. But the one that really hits me the most are the times I've spoken with native youth, and they tell me time and time and time again how badly they want this mascot issue to change and a lot of people don't realize that indian country our native youth are 70 percent likely more than any other race to take their lives right now suicide in indian country is horrifying horrifyingly high in statistics wise i've been on the phone with tribal leaders and said oh vincent i gotta go there's been another suicide not 
oh my gosh, there's been a suicide, there's been another suicide. It's, mm. it's horrifying. And these kids tell me, I was in Washington, D.C., this young man said, we really please, can someone please help us change the mascots? It's really hurting us as Native youth. And I'm looking at this kid going, I, I want to help as much as I can. So, you know, it is important. Um, well, listen, thanks uh, to both of you for being on this segment. Uh, Kristen Stoller, uh, keep on writing about this for the Hartford Current, where she's uh, covering uh, the West Hartford and Vincent Schilling. Uh, I'm sure that we're going to read more coverage from you on this in your publication as well. Uh, that's the Indian Country Today Media, ICTM. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, and we will be back with our final segment after this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Alex Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chief Thunder. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff singing Lida Rose from The Music Man, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, is Connecticut funny? And now, back to Colin. All right, uh, we're uh, heading into our final segment here. I do want to quickly say, because I just heard the Romeo and Juliet uh, uh, promo, that we will be doing a show about Romeo and Juliet, about the play. I mean, we'll be talking about the Harvard Stage uh, production, but also about the play, the why, why it survives, uh, why it survives in our consciousness, uh, what it speaks to, what tripwires it kicks. Uh, I believe we get that scheduled for February 18th. We've got also some pretty interesting shows coming up for you uh, this week. Uh, tomorrow, as has been mentioned, we're going to do. We did a panel a live panel uh, earlier this month about humor and about comedy. We had people from improv troops and stand-up comedian and uh, a comic playwright talking about not only the nature of humor, but uh, whether it's harder to do that kind of thing in Connecticut, which has kind of a serious reputation. Uh, on Wednesday, we'll be doing a show about people who switch parties. Uh, and uh, on Thursday, we'll be doing a show, um, and this one is al almost already produced, so I kind of know a little bit about it. Well, Alexander Wolf has written a book called The Audacity of Hoop. It's about the influence uh, of basketball on President Obama uh, and also the influence of President Obama on basketball. But also part of that show uh, are Jamal Wilkes, the great player for the Lakers and UCLA and other teams as well, uh, and Brandon Sherrod, who's a, a player for the uh, who play, player for Yale University, kind of famous for having taken a year off for um, um, uh, for to, to sing with the Whiffin' Poos. I'm stumbling here because I'm not exactly sure where the guests are, but here we go. I think I've got them up here on the board. Uh, so the conversation we're going to have right now is about the future of the Yukon Co-op bookstore. Uh, people who've ever been out there know it's a pretty terrific bookstore. Some of us who write books are always thrilled when we get asked to come out and, and read there and do signings. There's always a really interesting crowd there. You get that kind of university crowd. You see other writers in the audience. Uh, it's always been just a terrific place to go. But there are changes, possible changes on the horizon. Uh, so joining us right now is Susie Staubach, former uh, manager of General Books for the Yukon Co-op. Uh, and she's actually the person who gets you out there to do that reading, or she has, well, she was. Uh, and Tim Zarilla, he is a chair of the board of Yukon Co-op and a PhD candidate in political science. Uh, Tim, I'm going to have you set up this issue for us a little bit. What's go what is the proposal right now? What's going on out there uh, uh, at Yukon? Sure. Thanks, Colin, for having us on. It's um, great to have you take on this issue. So right now, the uh, University of Connecticut is 
looking at its different options for a bookstore operator. So there's been a, uh, a call for bids for different operators to come in as the official bookstore of Connecticut. And right now the Yukon Co-op has put forward its own proposal for um, basically trying to apply for our own job again. So uh, when you say apply for your own job again, so in other words, the, the and actually we'll read a statement in just a second from UConn uh, about what they're doing, but they're essentially saying that they're wondering whether somebody can do what the co-op bookstore does better than the co-op bookstore currently does it? Yeah, that's, um, that's what they're looking at, is just trying to make sure that uh, the co-op is able to continue to provide affordable educational materials and superior services well into the future. Um, so, Susie Stavak, I'm going to turn to you for a second. Um, obviously, uh, the co-op bookstore kind of has multiple missions. I mean, the, probably the main mission is uh, to provide textbooks. Textbooks have become incredibly, almost punitively uh, expensive uh, in, in a lot of cases. So how, how has, first of all, the Yukon Co-op bookstore addressed that problem? Actually, the Yukon Co-op bookstores, um our prices are lower than the uh, national chains, the lease operators. Uh, we have rentals. Um, we don't charge extra for our books to pay, you know, other fees to the book to the um, universities. So our prices average nine point six percent less than, say, Barnes and Noble. Right. Um, so so and there are yeah, our store is working very hard to make textbooks as affordable as possible. And you know, as you flesh out then the mission of that store, I mean, to me because I'm not a Yukon insider, I'm an outsider who comes in, I feel like another part of it is it's kind of a cultural hub for the community that's attached to the university and maybe even the broader community, too. That was our mission when, when we were founded, and we've taken that charge extremely seriously. And so, yes, um, being a cultural hub, bringing authors in ourselves, uh, promoting authors. Um, we also do art and you know, art exhibits and, and music. Um, sometimes student music, sometimes faculty. We have a couple of faculty bands that are kind of fun to listen to, some student bands. Um, bringing in, you know, internationally known authors and, and locally known authors. Um, and just being part of the um, whole cultural life at UConn. All right. Let me just read the um, the statement that UConn uh, put out. Uh, it said uh, the uh, we, by the way, invited uh, any official from UConn who wanted to come on today. But uh, what we uh, got instead, they shared this statement with us. This process began last year when the co-op's board told the university they doubted the co-op's long-term sustainability because of persistent financial problems and management challenges and asked UConn to consider taking it over. The university was not able to operate the co-op for many reasons, including financial constraints. Instead, UConn initiated a competitive bid process to select a bookstore operator. Uh, the co-op is competing for that opportunity. It's not a referendum on the co-op, and the question before the university isn't whether or not it should keep the co-op as a bookstore. The question is which bookstore operator can best meet the needs of the university, uh, including its students, faculty, alumni, fans, and visitors. Um, so, Tim, uh, as the head of the co-op board, first of all, does that statement uh, from the university ring true for you? So I think, um, you know, when the board approached the university with that, um, one of the biggest financial concerns that we had was a lot of the expenses and losses that we were um, taking on because of moving to a new location in downtown stores. Fortunately, um, you know, as with any new location, there's going to be some losses for a couple of years, and a lot of those initial concerns have been uh, sort of overblown, I think, uh, by 
previous members of our board. And um, but that's really what kind of started off this conversation. And so in a spirit of transparency and, and just trying to let the university know where we were, uh, the board approached UConn to let folks know uh, what was going on. <clears throat> and then, but since then, uh, you know, with the continued growth and development of the downtown stores area, uh, a lot of those losses have been uh, turned around. And a lot of the anticipated losses were a lot smaller than we thought they were going to be. So, Susie, this is a part of a national trend, right? I mean, the, the co-op, the bookstore co-op that I went to when I was in college is now a Barnes & Noble. And my sense is this is happening around the country. The, the big box operators, and specifically really Barnes & Noble because they're pretty much it at this point, um, are, are coming in and taking over these co-ops. Um, what, what, um, first of all, I, you correct me if I'm wrong about this, but second of all, what, if anything, gets lost in that process? Uh, a lot of things get lost. One really big thing that gets lost is um, independent stores, locally owned stores, have um, a, a professional staff of people who do buying, whereas a national chain, everything is done by a few buyers uh, who are centralized. So it's kind of like a one, you know, homogenized inventory across the country. So what you would find in a college in Missouri would be the same as what you find in stores in Connecticut, whereas with a co-op or, or another independent um, store, another university, the buyer is actually in the store and can react to what the interests of the community are um, and what's going on in the community and can react very quickly. Um, but, you know, you'd get to know, if you live in the community and you work in the community, you know all your customers personally, and then when you're looking at publishers' lists, you can reflect what that is. Um, the other thing that we always had, um, the co-op has had, it's a really strong um, presence of scholarly and academic books, university press books, which the um, national chains are not uh, noted for. And, you know, an academic um, community appreciates those. You know, Susie, we're almost out of time, but real quick. I mean, my, my, my assumption would be also just the notion of a co-op structure, a structure that is effectively, uh, if I understand a co-op, owned and run by the people right there at the university. I mean, there's even maybe kind of a learning experience, an academic value to having people there who are, who are trying to run this. That's absolutely true. I mean, the store is owned by members, most of whom are students. So this is actually their store. This would be closing their store that they own and run. Um, and giving it to a, a national entity. All right. We're going to have to stop it there, but we will uh, follow that story as well as the West Hartford uh, Native American mascot story as well. But that's the story of the Yukon uh, Co-op Bookstore, which is essentially having to reapply for its job and uh, outmaneuver any competitors who want to come in. Uh, thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll be back tomorrow with the aforementioned humor and comedy show. Three times every year When Ma takes two shillings for a share she shouts, feeling like a millionaire, she does. Stop and shop at the Quop, the Quop shop. What the shop is the Quop, the Quop shop. You can buy from a chop to a prop or a mop or a bottle of ginger pop at the Quop shop. As the pop shop is next to the Quop shop. When you've done your popping in the pop shop, you hop out of the pop shop and pop into the Quop shop. A proper shop to shop at is the Quop shop. Excuse me, I'm trying to cast my vote for Jim Webb. In that case, you have to play Itsy Bitsy Spider on this toy piano here. Okay. Itsy Bitsy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Turns out he's dropped out of the race. But he was in the race like a million years ago when I got here to vote. Oh, well. Mm-hmm.